Hi everyone, it's Bud, and welcome to the latest episode of Before the Cheering Started, all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment. Kenny Vance is an original, a connection to a music that was a building block in the 50s and 60s for every vocal group since. He's a Brooklyn guy through and through, and was a co-founder and original member of Jay and the Americans, a terrific 60s vocal group that had numerous hits, like Only in America and Come a Little Bit Closer. After that, he crafted a career making music for movies, and then on the oldies circuit with his group Kenny Vance and the Planetones, singing his beloved doo Now he's directed a movie, a documentary long in the works called Heart and Soul, When the Spirit of Rock and Roll Was Born. As Kenny describes it, this is where it all started. It's the music of the unsung heroes of rock and roll. So at this young age, <laughs> you just... You decide you're going to do a film about the music that you love. Yes. What was the origin of the idea? Because you've been at this for a while, yes? The origin of the idea was that it goes back a, while, a ways because I wound up, after I left Jay and the Americans in the 70s, it was Jay and the Americans was a, was a pop group in the 60s, very successful. I wound up doing... Uh, the only thing I knew how to do, which was I knew how to make period records. So I got hired to do American Hot Wax, which was the Alan Freed story. I did Animal House. I did The Warriors. I did Hairspray. I did uh, Eddie and the Cruises. And uh, at some point in the early 90s, I just was in a position where I thought, if you get a chance in this life to do what you love, you know, you got to go for it. And I decided to start a group called Kenny Vance and the Planetones. I didn't even realize there was a circuit out there, but there was an oldie circuit where groups like the Penguins and groups like the Cleftones and the Dubs and the Harptones and... Uh, all of the people that I loved, the Chantels, were still performing. Jimmy Beaumont and the Skyliners, Since I Don't Have You. And um, these people were all really still good. And they could draw 20,000 people at Madison Square Garden in New York or Nassau Coliseum or Mellon Arena out in Pittsburgh. And uh, I... I started to see these people on a regular basis. And I thought maybe I should interview them or talk to them. And so I started to archive a lot of footage with them. And then uh, as time went by, uh, I, I had a, a, a treasure trove of all of that stuff. And I guess in the back of my mind, I thought, you know, who wouldn't like this? It, it's 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 historical. It's entertaining, and it's it it and it's a slice of American Americana that most people really are not familiar with. A lot of people think, oh, pop music started with the Beatles, but this was the music, along with Buddy Holly and Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry. This was the music that the Beatles grew up with, and this is the music that they gravitated to. So. Anyway, as time went by, I started to piece it together. 
of course, I had never made a film on my own, so I didn't really understand the process and exactly how to move forward. But I knew to archive the footage. And then the footage was in my house mostly, and some of it was in storage. And the hurricane Sandy came, I think it was the year 2012. Right. And I was on a on one of these doo-wop cruises, time life cruise out in the Caribbean. And I watched the storm make a turn on the weather channel. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, you know, my house is in trouble. And sure enough, the next day, you know, I found out that my house was gone. And when I got back there, there were certain things that I could find. And on top of the kitchen, which which was my office, which had a lot of this archival footage and DVDs, uh, the room, the floor was there and some of the cabinets were there, but the, the walls were gone and the ceiling was gone. And I got a ladder and I went up there and I collected a bunch of this stuff. And then I was staying in a FEMA hotel and as time went by, I started to look at the DVDs and I saw that this was the footage that I had taken of a lot of these performers. And it, it gave me a purpose. I could either fold from that experience or I could move forward. And I decided to move forward making the film. And then I started, I got an editing uh, a facility we found the producer, Bronwyn Berry. We found Mona Davis and Liz Nichols. Mona Davis, the editor. Liz Nichols, the executive producer. And we, we finally finished the movie about six months ago. And wow. uh, we played at the... We were the opening movie for Black Music... Black History Month or Black Music Month at the Grammy Museum. And we showed the movie there. We are hoping to wind up with a distributor at some point, and pretty much that's the the arc of the story. So, um, 2012, a few months after Hurricane Sandy, was the first time I met you, and we went out to what remained of your house. Um, it's now more than a decade since that experience. Have your thoughts about that time changed at all upon reflection now that it's more than a decade? I don't really think about it often but when i do sometimes it's it's pretty profound it's something that you know that that that's such a violation that you just can't you know you can't really uh you can't really it doesn't ever really go away and uh, I have a lot of pictures of the house and a lot of memories. I lived there for 40 years in that house. So I had everything there. You know, I started doing this, started singing and making records when I was 15. So that's a couple of, that's 65 years ago. And um, I had all of the stuff, all of the records, all of the, the posters where we played. I remember the first job we played in a firehouse in New Haven, Connecticut, and uh, all of the, everything was everything was gone, basically, except for the archival footage of of what became this movie called Heart and Soul. 
well, regardless of whatever your thoughts are about spirituality, the notion that that footage survived, that's a sign that's from somewhere. True. I agree. I agree. I recall, uh, you know, if, if you're lucky as a journalist, you have these moments when you're uh, interviewing people and there are moments that stay with you forever. And uh, there are several moments from that first interview <laughs> with you that, that um, I'm blessed to uh, have those memories. But in particular, as we went back to where the house was and you're still picking through the sand yeah, and you find a key from, from Tennessee uh, and you told me that it was your habit to kind of back when there were keys to hotel rooms, uh, when you guys, Jay and the Americans were on the road, you would manage to lift a hotel key just kind of as a memento from all the places you've been. I would always, I had a, I don't know, maybe we went to Paris and I had uh, played in Paris and we played in London and Manchester and different Liverpool and other all over, all over Europe. And I would, collect the keys and we all over the United States, Monroe, Louisiana, Nacogdoches, Louisiana. Uh, and so when we went to Memphis, we played in Memphis and we stayed in a hotel and actually uh, uh, that night, Otis Redding was in the hotel. He was playing in a different venue and we were playing, I don't remember exactly where, but uh, we had played in Birmingham, Alabama with uh, Roy Orbison and Montgomery, Alabama with Roy Orbison. And this time we're playing in Memphis with a, with a, a show. There was a bunch of people on the show. And after the show, uh, I, I was approached by some of the guys in Elvis's, uh, uh, what what they, uh, his entourage, entourage. And they said, you know, Elvis, this 1966. <laughs> and so they said, Elvis, you know, wants you to come back to Graceland and, you know, hang, hang out. And I said, you know, I got to get up really early <laughs> and take a plane. <laughs> and I, I mean, and, you know, that's something <laughs> that still haunts me to this day. <laughs> I'm sorry, Elvis. Uh, which Elvis would that be, uh, Elvis? Um, yeah, I'm. I, I, I'm sorry. I got. Uh, you know, I got I, stuff I'm, going I, on. I got, I'm busy. I got. I'm in a meeting. Yeah. I'm in a meeting. <laughs> that's that's classic. <laughs> that is classic. Uh, listening to the music growing up in Brooklyn. Uh, was the music on in your home? And how'd your folks feel about this uh, music? that all of a sudden is is kind of taking over the airwaves no that music wasn't in the home uh adults in those days in the in the 50s they had their we're own, talking about mid 50s here you're about yeah, 10 11 56, 12 something like that you know something yeah. like that they had their own world they really didn't communicate with teenagers or right. adolescents you you recall that yeah, there was that dynamic where adults were in their own space and kids were in their space, and what happened was, uh, even the clothes. You remember, like, like, like for girls to get dressed up, they had to, you know, wear the things that their mother wore. There weren't clothes for teenagers, right? So, what happened was, Alan Freed 
a disc jockey from Cleveland, came to New York to WINS, which was, right. as I recall, a 50,000-watt station. It was a failing station. And I think this was the last ditch, ditch effort for them to, you know, make a move into the into the mainstream. And they decided to bring Alan Freed here. And he came in with the rock, Alan Freed's Rock and Roll Party. And mm-hmm. within a couple of months, he had the top share on the on the on the on the. On the uh, help me out on, what it, on the radio. On the radio, there you go. And so, as kids, we he became he created a revolution because every night we would listen to him, and then every Saturday he he would have the top twenty. We loved him, and then one day he announced that he was having a rock and roll show, the first ever rock and roll show at the Brooklyn Paramount with Chuck Berry, with Jerry Lee Lewis, with Screamin' Jay Hawkins, with the Chantels, with with Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers, with the, with uh, Buddy Holly. And and um, so we I got on the subway and I, I went down Flappish Avenue and I got at, I think, at DeKalb Avenue. And there were thousands of kids there from all over New Jersey, Connecticut, all over New York, all from all neighborhood, neighborhoods, all ethnicities. I went into the theater and of course, you know, what I saw, I never forgot because we lived in a time when it was very, very straight, very... Uh, kind of uh, sterile? Very sterile. And uh, I think Eisenhower was the president and it was just a different world. So this all of a sudden energized you. And, 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 and actually, it was the beginning of the youth culture because Frankie Lyman's record was made by George Goldner on G Records. Up until that time, Rhythm and blues stations were playing records that were made by black artists for black adults. And all of a sudden, Frankie Lyman's record, Why Do Fools Fall in Love, comes on the chart, comes on the radio. And it's and and those records sold 50,000. A hit was 50,000 records. Frankie Lyman's record sold a million copies. Who's buying this? And it was a cross-section of people in America were buying it. Teenagers were buying it. So right there, the dress manufacturers, the makeup people, the movie people, other record people started to realize that this was the big, this was the audience that they wanted to go after. And that's how the youth culture became so powerful with that, the advent of that record, in my opinion. How long is it bef- after you go to that show at the Brooklyn Paramount, one of these iconic places in, you know, mid-50s New York, how long is it before you think to yourself, I got to get a bunch of guys to sing with? Well, it probably, <laughs> probably happened that night. But, but what happened was we would go down, we would hear Alan Freed. You couldn't tape things in those days. Right. And then and so so we would go down, we would re- remember a song like uh, uh, church bells may ring 
And surely, darling, the angels will sing. I could keep going because it's like ingrained in me. And, you know, you would get a bunch of guys that in your class and they would come down there. So after a while, you'd have maybe six, seven guys and a bunch of the guys were all on the same note. (laughs) So you started to. You, if you started to realize that they were singing in harmony on the radio. So you would you'd say, well, you sing this part, I'll sing this part, and you sing the part under that. And some of the guys could hear that, and right. some of them didn't. So you started to weed out the guys that couldn't do it, and you <laughs> wound up with a group of guys that actually could harmonize. And, and we started a group. Uh, I started a group with a friend, two friends, and it's called the Harbolites. And then we started Jane the Americans basically that way. We learned a couple of songs off of the radio. We learned Wisdom of a Fool by the Five Keys. And we went, we took the train in from Brooklyn to the Brill Building. Where somebody real building the very symbol of songwriting and record making at that point in New York City. Exactly. And they and there was a, a two two of the greatest songwriters and producers of the era, maybe of all time, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller were there. And we went in and knees knocking, and we we knew that they had written Hound Dog and produced Elvis Presley, Jailhouse Rock, and the Coasters, Yakety Yak, Charlie Brown, Searching, Love Potion Number Nine, The Drifters, There Goes My Baby, and and you know we went in to sing for them, and they liked what they heard, and they said, okay, you know we're gonna we're gonna make a record with you. And about six months later, I was uh, eighteen. Jay Trainer was seventeen. And we we did one record, and then we followed it up with She Cried, which was a top five record in the United States. And uh, that was the end of 1961, 1962. And that was a hit record. And actually, I used She Cried in the movie uh, Heart and Soul, the movie, the documentary Mm -hmm. that I just made. And when I listened to it, from this vantage point, I thought to myself, Jay Trainer is killing it. His performance is a killer on She Cried. And, and he, I think to myself, the guy's 17 years old. And if it wasn't for him and it wasn't for that performance, I don't think it would have been a hit. Didn't uh, Lieber and Stoller, weren't they a little uh, men's amends about it initially? And your mother gave you some advice? Oh, well, I, it's, it's wild that you remember that. So what happened? No, actually, so they, they, they heard us sing a cappella and they said, come back tomorrow and we're going to sign you up and make a record. We came back the next day and we're standing in front of them and they, they have a strange look and they say, you know, we... We, we were little, we, we spoke too soon. We, we really can't do this. So we, we left, we were completely dejected and we wound up going home and my mother, 
she noticed that there was something wrong. And she says, what happened? I said, well, you know, they told us that, that it was, the deal was off. So she says, well, you go back there tomorrow and tell them that they can't do that to you. So rather than face my mother in the morning, I got up <laughs> and I took the train back into the city, 49th and Broadway, 1619 Broadway. I went in Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller's office. Just you or did you go back with all the guys? Just me. Okay. And I wound up asking the receptionist if I could see Jerry and Mike. And so they said, okay, have them come in. And I went in there and I said to them, uh, my mother told me to tell you guys <laughs> that you can't <laughs> do this to us. And they looked at each other and they looked at me. And it's one of those spiritual moments that you talked about before. And they said, all right. Tell the guys to come back tomorrow. And then we came back tomorrow, the next day. And uh, as I said, six months later, we had a number one record in the country. God bless her. Yeah. Yeah. God bless her yeah. for saying that. Well, was there ever a conversation at home that you recall that uh, with your family, like, hey, you know, I love this music and this is what I'm going to do? Or was there pressure to come on, do something else? You know, well, you know, go to college or. Of course. As a matter of fact, you know, even though even in those days, you couldn't really make the jump, because if you looked at history, you saw Frankie Lyman in the teenagers. By 1961, it was over for them. It was over for most of those groups. And it was time for them to get a job. So basically we were a little bit cautious about it and my parents really you know i guess they were just sort of watching it unfold and uh even many years later after 1964 we uh, we were the opening act for the beatles in washington dc and we were actually the opening act for the rolling stones at carnegie hall we had come a little bit closer. Let's lock the door. In 64, in 1965, we had Caramia. And I remember- These are all big hits at the time. Huge. They were huge. We were, you know, happening. <laughs> we were going to Europe and playing. And my, my father, he, he, he came to, the, to see us at uh, an evening of solid gold at the Madison Square Garden with Jay and the Americans, the Four Seasons, The Four Tops, and The Temptations. And, That's pretty um, good. You know, he kept, he said, you know, he, he says, you got to get a job. <laughs> because he just, you know, they, he, he, did, he was nervous. Right. And even though he saw the adulation and the everything, you know, nobody knew anybody in the neighborhood that had ever gone into show business. So, so they didn't have any template for it. They didn't know that, you, you know, you actually could sustain a career in it. Neither did I. We, we didn't know either, you know, because every time we had a hit record, it, it gave us more fuel to keep going. But in those days, even though you, you, you had a hit record, 
they didn't pay you. And that's a whole other part, whole other story. And even though we had a number one record, we got $350 for five guys to play on, on the shows that we were booked on. It's amazing. Even on Ed Sullivan, they paid, I know the coasters would be on there, different groups would be on there. They paid them $2,500. You told me once about uh, when you did open, or you came on after the Stones at Carnegie Hall? Well, we, we probably have the distinction of of opening for the Rolling Stones and closing for the Rolling Stones because there were two shows at Carnegie Hall. So we go on, we got the alpaca sweaters on with these, they, I don't even know, do they make dickies? They still, we had these dickies right. and, and doing steps. We would, you know, doing these steps and singing only in America was the opening act, the opening song. And we, we, uh, we opened the show and then these guys come out and we hung, we hung with them in the dressing room actually. And they were just so nonchalant about everything. And then, you know, one of, I know Bill Wyman, I remember watching him is wearing a sweatshirt and dungarees and he was leaning up against the wall playing the bass. Well, anyway, the crowd was going, they were going crazy. So now the disc jockey was Murray the K. He was the MC. And Sid Bernstein ran the sh- was it was his show Sid Bernstein and he he uh, Murray the K was the disc jockey and he comes back and he says listen he says you guys got to close the second show he says if you don't there's going to be a riot so we said we can't follow these guys he says you got to do it and you know we fought, fought with them for a few minutes and then they went on the place went crazy and then we. He says, right now from Brooklyn, New York, Jay and the Americans, and we come out singing only in America. And while we're singing, I'm watching the audience get up and run out of the theater, run out of Carnegie Hall. They were running out to try to catch them, the stones in the back when they were leaving. And so we cleared, the song was over. And that was the end of it. We got that was the, the the show was over, and I remember getting off the stage, and I took a cab back to Brooklyn, and I thought, I better get a guitar. Hmm. But it was incredible because we got to see, we got to see the Beatles come down from the top of the stadium, and the roar that went up. It was sort of like a sound that I'll never forget. That was the sound that ushered in a whole new way of a whole new consciousness for people mm. with the, with everything that they with everything that they brought as time went by. After Jay and the Americans, you crafted a career in music, as you discussed earlier, through films and your own performing for decades. Uh, was there a point where again, uh, with your family, maybe years later, where it was kind of like a, Hey, you did it, you know, you managed it. Yeah. I mean, you know, my dad, you know, in those days it was, I don't know, just in my house, he didn't really express that to me, but I do know that as, as years went by, when I made my first CD by myself, 
he had that cassette in his car forever. There was he only had one cassette in the car. It was my my short vacation album. And then when I did Eddie and the Cruises, which was a huge, huge hit uh, at the time, he uh, would stand outside of the theater, like in Florida, where he lived. And he would tell people, he says, oh, my son, you know, did the music for that film. <laughs> and he didn't tell me that, but people told me that. How beautiful is that? Yeah. Yeah, Stephen Van Zandt has told me the story about... Um, Growing up down the Jersey Shore, his rock and roll was not so popular in the house in the mid '60s. But and uh, but he told me I think the story is that uh, the first time he was able to send his folks to Hawaii, oh. he was like, "Well, maybe this is okay." okay. <laughs> <laughs> we all grew up in a neighborhood. Yes, but for those of us who did not grow up in Brooklyn at that time, mm -hmm. and for those of us who have never been on. American Bandstand, this iconic show that was known across the country. Can you kind of close your eyes and describe what the experience is like going back to the neighborhood in Brooklyn after you've been on American Bandstand or your song is on the radio? Wow. You just feel... Uh so like that you're on the pulse of something and the, and the neighborhood was very kind and you became a celebrity in the neighborhood and uh but it was a very different neighborhood it was very people knew each other and even if you didn't know people, you could go to different neighborhoods and it was, it was okay. You would go to Bedford-Stuyvesant and you'd hear, and, and, and there would be groups on the stoop and you'd hear them singing. They would be making up songs and you would hear the music kind of wafting through the air. You'd go down to the boardwalk at Coney Island and you'd get uh, a couple of hot dogs and a hamburger and French fries and a chow mein sandwich and a root beer float to wash it all down at Nathan's. And then you'd go on the cyclone. You didn't think anything of it. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and then uh, you'd go down to the boardwalk in the evening. On a Friday evening, I remember going down there and guys would be wearing matching suits and there would be the battle of the groups. And we would sing songs that that uh, we heard on the on the on the mostly on the Alan Freed show on WINS. That was that was that was a huge thing. It was just a, a world of innocence, a world that would make out parties where they played spin the bottle. And 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 you, you went there and you thought, oh, this is it. My life is going to change. But when you got to the make out party. The girls were all on one side, the guys were on another side, and everybody was like frozen in fear of what was supposed to happen. Pretty much, you know, that's it. And you weren't inundated by the, the news and all of the channels with the news. It was there, but it wasn't 
ever present in your life. And uh, so it, you preserved your innocence. And there was, a, there was tremendous innocence there. Even when you made the records, it was just something that happened. You didn't promote it. You actually had, had something to do with it, but you were, you were instructed by people that were brilliant at that, like Jerry Lieber and Mike Stolas. So we were the lucky recipients of, of, their, of their artistic uh, gift. Coming back to the film, is there a thread that runs through all the interviews that you've done with these musicians, uh, a theme both about the music and also about the business that you found kind of as a constant during all these interviews with all these great musicians? There, there, there's Little Anthony and the Imperials. There's uh, s- s- some of the teenagers uh, Arlene Smith from the Chantels, uh, Cleveland Still from the Dubs, Wally Roker, the famous bass from the Heartbeats, and uh, and the great Eugene Pitt from Bedford Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, My True Story, and there's there there's a bittersweet story about the money, and there's no. You don't feel any, I guess the wind of it all was better than, than what, what the loss of it. And uh, it, you just don't feel any, you feel disappointment, but you don't feel like any of these artists held on to it. But they created a music that when you hear well, there are 55 songs in the movie. When you hear the songs, there's just something about them that is everlasting, that has a certain purity to it, a passion to it. And those songs are the, the, the those are the shoulders that everyone wound up standing on, their shoulders. And uh, so I hope everyone comes to see the movie. It would be great because uh, I'd like to hear your feedback and to know that what that, that I, I felt as if I was in a position to do it and that I guess I was the guy that needed to do it because I lived it and then I was able to preserve it. What a blessing that is. Yes. To take something that you're passionate about, that, that something that created you, and to be able to shine a little more than a little bit of a light on it, and also to shine a light on them. I think that not only myself, but I think all of the artists that I feature in the film felt the same way that they were blessed to 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 express their art and to actually have hit records with the art. Kenny, always a pleasure to talk to you. I look forward to seeing you again, and uh, it's so great to see you and catch up. All the best with everything. You're a good man. Thanks a lot. Kenny Vance. His documentary, Heart and Soul, When the Spirit of Rock and Roll Was Born, is now out. And you can get more information at heartandsoulthemovie.com. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin. 
And this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the journey.